Well, hopefully you're in 1 John. You've had enough time to get there. 1 John uh, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14. John has been writing, encouraging the saints and saying some hard things to them. We'll talk more about that. And now here in verses 12 through 14, he offers some words of sweet encouragement to the saints. If you're able to stand in honor of God as we read this word together, please do so. Don't feel obligated to. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14 of 1 John chapter 2. Paul writes in verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we we pray that this would be true of us. May your glory be revealed through the, the preaching of your word, the teaching of it. And may our hearts, every one of them, confess your son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we've been going through 1 John, we've seen an apostle writing who loves the people to whom he's writing very much. John is a shepherd, he's a pastor, and he's writing to these churches in Asia Minor, he's had great concerns about what's going on in the lives of the people to whom he's writing. The people to whom he's writing have had their theological worlds rocked in some very profound ways. As John and the apostles have have ministered to them, things have gone well, and then as time has gone on and some of the apostles have died off, John is is remaining, but, but some of the other church founders, the, the, the apostles upon which Christ founded his church, many of them have left the scene, and, and some false teachers have entered into Asia Minor. And they're telling the people in these churches, hey, we've got some special secret knowledge. The things that the apostles taught were good as far as they went, but, but they didn't know everything that we know. We've got some secret knowledge combined with our philosophy and and come away from this church, come to us, and, and we'll tell you where it's really at. We'll give you some, some insight into who God really is, and, and we'll let you really know him in a secret way. And so some people have left the church. They've followed these false teachers. And these teachers have told them things about Jesus and about God and his character that are not true. And the people, as, they, as, they've, as they've left the church, have engaged in in disobedience to God and what he's called them to do and how he's called them to live. And their lifestyles have been marked not just by disobedience to God, but but a disobedience manifested by very unloving behavior towards believers. John writes, 1 John, to help the people who've remained in the church to know that they know God. To be assured that their understanding of how one has fellowship with God is correct. To encourage them that they 
have made the right decision. And as John does that, he says some hard things. He communicates some hard truths. I mean, you guys know, as we've been going through this, John says some things that are really tough to process, to deal with, some things that are very convicting and potentially very discouraging. He gives them a series of tests, and we're going to encounter these tests throughout this epistle as we, as we go through it. But he begins, really, in verse 5 of chapter 1 with a, a tough test, a truth test. There's some things that people who are in fellowship with God must believe to be true. There's some truths that they must affirm and some things they must deny if they're going to be in right relationship with God. They need to rightly believe some things about sin. They, they need to understand that they're not perfect. They need to understand that sin can only be dealt with by faith in Jesus Christ alone. They need to rightly understand who Jesus is. There's a truth test, a doctrinal test, that they need to pass if it's true that they're in relationship with God. There's also, John goes on to say, an obedience test. There are things that need to be true of their life if their hearts have truly been transformed by the gospel. And if their lives are marked by persistent, continual disobedience to God, they need to understand that they may not be genuine believers. There's also, John says, as we looked at even just a few weeks ago, a love test. There are things that need to be true of their relationship with other believers, and if those things are not true of the relationships with other believers, they fail the love test, and again, there's possibility that they are not truly part of the community of faith. They're not really in fellowship with God. Now, those are some hard truths. The, the love test, the obedience test, the truth test, those are some hard tests. And they can be discouraging. And in fact, sometimes due to our being human beings with all our weaknesses and our inadequacies, sometimes we can communicate truths in such a way that something that's, we're communicating something true in such a way that we end up communicating something that's untrue. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. Slower. No, uh, I don't think that's going to help. Let me say it again differently. Sometimes we can take truths, maybe hard truths, and because we communicate them poorly, we end up communicating something that's not true. So we might take a, a, a truth about God's character, and we, we say it in such a way, and we, and we fail to say some other things, and we say it in a real arrogant tone or something, that we end up saying some things that, that are technically true, but we're saying it in such an unloving way that, that it's communicating something that's not true. Is that better? <laughs> Let me give you an example. When I was in college, I was having a discussion with my dad, and we were talking about some of these, these things about obedience to God and how important obedience is, and, and I was saying it in a very brash, arrogant, unloving way. I was really camping out on this idea of obedience, and I was, I was quoting another pastor, too, and I was talking about how if, if a person is, is not obedient to God, they're not a Christian, and, and obedience is crucial in the Christian life, and I, I was saying it in, in a very harsh, arrogant, judgmental way, and instead, I should have said something like, you know, here's the gospel, we come into relationship with God by His grace alone, 
through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not a part of works. And, and then as we, we come into relationship by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, then God transforms us and, and there's fruit in our lives. And as we see the fruit in our life, we can have assurance that our hearts have been transformed. I, I should have said it more like that, but instead I was just saying, we need to see fruit, we need to see fruit, we need to see fruit. But Dad said uh, two things in response that were really good, although I did not admit it at the time. He said, first of all, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, Daniel, you better hope that Christians can be disobedient because you are. And secondly, he said, you know, the, the pastor you're quoting, he has a church full of a bunch of people who have no idea if they're Christians or not because he's so emphasizing just, just one aspect of what God's Word says about works and assurance. He said, surely God did not write those things so that you'd have a church full of people wandering around going, I don't even know if I'm a Christian or not. Now, I don't know if my basic personality has changed since college. I still have a lot of the same weaknesses, but, but God has been gracious in allowing me to see those weaknesses and, and express my personality in different ways. And so the good thing is that as you preach through Scripture, God is balanced, and God communicates His truth perfectly. And what John has done, what God has done through the Apostle John in 1 John, is he's, he's said some, hey, Here's some hard truths. You need to think deeply about this. You need to ask yourself, do I believe the right things? Am I seeing the work of God in my life? Am I, am I seeing the, the results of a heart transformed by the gospel? Do I love other people? Do I, do I see those things in my life? Am I part of the true faith or am I not part of the true faith? Those are some real things that we have to wrestle with. But God doesn't want us to spend our entire lives wandering around going, I don't even know if I'm a Christian or not. If we placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and we've begun to see some of the fruits in that, there, there should be assurance. And John takes some time here in verses 12 through 14 and, and says, look, I want to encourage you guys. Here are some reasons you should be encouraged, John says. In fact, as we go through these, what I want to have happen in your life is, is I, want you, I want you to experience God's joy as you consider what is true of your life. There should be joy, there should be um, assurance of God's love for you, and there should be motivation to continue in obedience as we come to the end of our time together. As you see what John says to encourage you, things that should be true for you as a believer. He said some things, hey, here's how you know you're not part of, this, the, of, of a false church, if you believe the right things do the, and, and see the fruit of God in your life and, and love each other, you know you're in the right church. You know you're part of the right fellowship. Now, when you've made that determination, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you, John says. In fact, uh, let's look at the text here. And let me show you some things about the structure of uh, 1 John chapter 2 here. So uh, notice as you go through this, and it's kind of hard to see in our translations sometimes, but as you go through this, you see that there's six phrases that John has in verses 12 through 14. And if you look closely at the text, you'll see that these six phrases can be divided into two main sections. So the, kind of the middle of this section, and I, and I think there's some un, 
unfortunate verse divisions here in the English translations, but really there's the, the, the division should be kind of in the, the second third of verse 13. Because what John does is he says, I'm writing to you little children, I'm writing to you fathers, I'm writing to you young men, and he tells why he's writing to each of those groups. And then he goes on and he says, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. He goes through that, through that pattern again. Really, it's very similar. The only thing he does is he changes the tense a little bit of how he's saying he's writing. The first three says, I'm writing to you in the present tense, I'm writing to you right now. In the last three, he uses a, a tense we don't have in English that describes something you've done in the past that has results in the present. Basically, he's going through addressing three groups one time, then addressing the three groups the second time, saying, look, I'm, 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 here's, here's the summation of all that I'm doing. I'm, I'm exhorting you and encouraging you because of something that's, that's true about you. Now, here's, here's another question that sometimes people have as they, they look at this structure here. A person might look at it and say, hey, hold on, not a kid, not a father, not a young man. Can I go to lunch early? What's the deal? Is there hungry? I'm really looking forward to this newcomer lunch, can you tell? What's going on here? Is he just writing to, to literal children and fathers and young men? I, I don't think so. Some people have said, well, maybe he's writing to people who are like spiritual children and spiritual fathers and spiritual young men, and, and I don't think that's true either. I think he's addressing everyone in the church with these phrases. If you'll remember, at the beginning of chapter 2, he was referring to everyone, and he called them little children, right? He, he likes referring to, to the, the, the church at large as little children. He does it in chapter 3, I think, verse 7. He does it in chapter 4, verse 4. He does it at the, very, the, the last verse of 1 John. He refers to them as my little children. Uh, keep yourself from idols. And he likes referring to the, the entirety of the church using, using language like this. And so I, I think that what he's doing is he's describing the church at large using this language, but he's, he's talking about attributes that are true of a certain age group or of a certain type of person. So he's, he's going to say, look, uh, hey church, you're like little children in this way. You know? We'll talk about that in a second. And dads, you're kind of like dads in this way. And, and, and church, you're kind of like young men as, as Christians in this way. You're, you're strong and overcomers. I, I think he's using that imagery in each of these verses to, 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 to encourage the people. And he's going to go through and, and, and say some encouraging things to them. And he's going to go through and he's going to say it again. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to divide it up a little bit differently just for the sake of, of time and, and how we're going to communicate it. We're going to look at what he says to, to children a group and, and what attributes the church has, as, as what childlike attributes we have. We're going to talk about kind of like father-like attributes we have that should encourage us, and then how we're kind of like young men and how that should encourage us. So let's, let's dive into the text here, and the first thing we see is, is what he says to us as, as children. He's saying, children, you need to be encouraged, and this is all about encouragement, you need to be encouraged because you have a heavenly father. Look at what he says in verse uh, verse 12, and then again in the end of verse 13. First of all, he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then he says in the end of verse 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. And so something happens in verse 12, their sins are forgiven, that allows them to come into relationship with a father in verse 13. Children, basically he's saying, you should be encouraged because you have a heavenly father. 
Now, why does he call us children? He uses a slightly different word in verse 13 than he does in 12, but same idea. Why does he refer to us as, as children? What, what comes to your mind when you think of children? My kids are getting to be a, a little bit older. You know, my oldest just turned 13 last Sunday, and my youngest is seven, about to turn eight. And so we're kind of at a, a new phase of uh, child rearing. As we've entered into this uh, new phase of, of child rearing, uh, we, we've, we've struggled a little bit to, to know exactly how to, to, to sympathize with people who have uh, children at, at different ages. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a world gone by for us. Looking down at the, the hallway, though, on a, on a Sunday morning, I'm reminded of, of some of the, the struggles that, that we've had. You know, our children are kind of the age where they're running down the hall, uh, knocking down your little children. But, uh, you know, I, I, I look and I see, you know, for example, uh, a mom with a, with a baby carrier. You see moms walking all, all the time with these, these baby carriers. And if they start off here, as, you know, around their, their arms as the, the baby is, is an infant. And then as the, as the weeks go by, the, the, the baby carrier gets lower and lower and and, you know, by the way, uh, people, as you see moms uh, walking down the hallway with these uh, baby carriers, uh, give them a hand. Now, maybe they don't want you to steal their children. Like, you can just see, like, a stranger. Hey, give me your kid. I'll help you. Good. But, you know, see how you can help these, these, these moms, as, especially as we see these moms struggling down the hallways of our crowded uh, ch- uh, church building here. Why do moms have to do that? Why, why can't these kids take themselves? Because they're, they're children, they're, they're, especially these infants, they, they can't care for themselves. There's, there's need. They can't get from one end of this long hallway to the other. There's need there. There's a need that exists that we have as well. And again, look at verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you little children. And here's, here's why. Here's the encouragement. that It's, it's need that you're children and, and, and helpless because your sins are forgiven. And again, that, that phrase, are forgiven, that, that word there is in the perfect tense. It describes something that happened in the past that has present results. Your sins are forgiven, and it's passive as well. In other words, you didn't forgive your own sins. Your sins have been forgiven by someone else. God, your heavenly Father, stepped in and did what you were unable to do. Now stay with me here. Here's one other really important thing you need to see in verse 12. This is, this is big. This, this is a life-altering truth here. It affects how you view the Christian life and everything. Be a Berean. Watch, watch me carefully here. Here's what it says in the last part of the verse. Your sins are forgiven for you are so special. Your sins are forgiven for you're super duper awesome. Your sins are forgiven because God just had to have you because he looked at you and said, you're so beautiful. Now, you are special, you are beautiful, you're all those things, but not really. Why does God forgive you? Why does God do for you what you are unable to do for yourself? It's not because you're super-duper awesome. It's for his own glory. You say, now, Daniel, how in the world is that encouraging? Now I feel bad. 
Let's walk through this biblically, and I think you'll see why this is so encouraging. For example, uh, you go back, you see this uh, several times in Scripture, the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 14, uh, the, the people of Israel have, have failed to enter into the, the promised land because they're, they, of unbelief, and, and God says he's going to, to strike them, and Moses responds to God, he says, look, verse 15, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your name will say, well, he wasn't able. It's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he's killed them in the wilderness. Now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you've promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will no, by no means clear the guilty. Pardon, he says in verse 19, the iniquity of the people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. What's the basis upon which Moses says God should forgive? He doesn't say, God, I know this people have just demonstrated that they have no trust in you, no faith, but trust me, they're really awesome. Give them a second chance. He says, God, no, stay with us. Forgive us. Because of the greatness of your name and what you're able to do. Psalm 25, the psalmist is talking about uh, the paths of the Lord, our steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So he's, he's talking about o- obedience, and then he starts talking about disobedience in verse 11 of Psalm 25. He says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Why does God forgive? He gives for the he forgives for the glory of his own name. Isaiah, same thing, Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 43, God says, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Let me show you in one more passage. Let me show you in one more passage. Romans chapter 3. You all hopefully have memorized Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Paul says in verse 24, you're justified, you're declared righteous by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Why did God justify us? Why did God declare us us righteous? He did it, Paul says, to show his righteousness. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You say, now Daniel, how is that encouraging? How can I be encouraged to know that I have a heavenly father if it's all about the ultimate purpose that he forgave my sins is, is for his name's sake? If your assurance, if your assurance of your salvation was based upon believing 
that God saw something within yourself, within you, and said, man, that's super awesome. I've got to have that for my collection. If that's the basis of your assurance, there are going to be moments in your life where you come face to face with your complete and total inadequacies before a holy God and say, oh, oh dear. If your assurance is based upon something as, as fleeting as, as your own value, that's not going to be very comforting. But John says, no, that's not why. That's not the basis of your assurance. He tells us that God forgave us not for our own glory, but, but for his name's sake. There's an assurance and a, and a certain we, certainty we have because God's glory is on the line. We have entered into a relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And, and now... God has been glorified by our salvation and we are kept secure in the knowledge that, that God's forgiveness of us is, is to his glory. Whenever we talk about being forgiven, when I say, you know, I'm forgiven, you don't think, man, that Daniel, he's awesome. He got himself forgiven. No, you say, wow, that God is awesome. Daniel isn't awesome because he's been forgiven. God is awesome because he forgave Daniel. God's glory is manifested in his forgiveness. Grasping that truth should be immensely encouraging, and it should transform the way you view your life. Constantly seeing the glory of God manifest in your life, and constantly realizing my salvation is not really about me, ultimately. God is under no divine compulsion to have my life turn out the way that I desire it to. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify God. That's encouraging. Children, he says, be encouraged because you have a heavenly Father. He's forgiven you for his name's sake, verse 12. And that allows us, verse 13, to have a heavenly father, to be in relationship with him. Be encouraged because you are part of a sovereign God's plan to display to the universe his eternal sovereign power and glory. Children, be encouraged because you now have a heavenly father. You're helpless like children in church, but you have a father who's brought you into relationship with him. That's encouraging. Now he addresses fathers. Fathers, he's going to tell us, fathers, those of you who are in the church, you're like fathers, you need to be encouraged because you know the eternal God. And again, in verse, uh, verse 13, the beginning of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14, he says, I'm writing to you fathers, he's going to say the exact same thing to each, to each, uh, in, each in each verse, because you know, and again, that word know is in the perfect tense. So this happened in the past, it has results in the present. You know him who is from the beginning. What brings, what comes to mind as you see what John is trying to do here is he, he conjures up the image of us as fathers. Fathers oftentimes know things. My daughter came to me a, a few weeks ago and, and she said, uh, as we're talking about something, I, I mentioned uh, some fact and she goes, Oh, wow. Dad, you're really smart. 
really. Uh, yes, I guess. <laughs> no, I, I was careful. I was like, well, I know, I know that because I've been alive a lot longer than you. But as you live longer, I'll become less smart. Um, but the image of a dad, a young child looking at, at, her, at her dad. Man, that guy's smart. He knows everything. Father, you're, you're like fathers. And, and, and here, here's the image I think John is trying to convey here. Uh, you know, you've come to know him who's from the beginning. You've entered into relationship with a God who you come to the beginning of time and he's there. And then you go before time and he's there also. You know you have a relationship with him who has always existed. We've talked about this before, but you have a relationship with a God who lived for an infinite amount of time before time began, who existed for an infinite amount of time, which means, and we've talked about this application before, but it's so crucial to grasp, it means when it comes to your individual life and each second of your individual life, so thousand one, two, every second of your life, God has had an infinite amount of time to contemplate and know and plan that second of your life. And that's not just true for you as an individual. It's true to the person who's sitting next to you and the other person and every single person in this world and every single person in this world who's not alive any longer and whoever will live God has had every moment of their existence known and planned and contemplated it for an infinite amount of time. So what does that mean in terms of how we can trust him and how is that encouraging? What it means is that you and I can have a relationship with the one who knows all things and can work all things together for his glory and his purposes. And what it means is, is this, is well, here's another application. This, this past, uh, past few weeks, we had a, one of our children who was struggling with some, some memorizing, had to memorize some, some things. And I, could, I was exhorting him <laughs> as a loving father. He's not here, so I can say this. Um, I was exhorting him as a loving father to persevere in his memory work. And even as I was persevering, encouraging him to persevere, I was, I was remembering, it was like a flashback of whenever I was memorizing these, these same facts whenever I was younger and realizing I couldn't recall them today. <laughs> there were a lot of them that I, you know, I was like a little shaky on. And I thought about, I think it's good to memorize things and know these things, of course, but, you know, in eternity, probably not going to be that important. Certainly not that. It doesn't come up very often in my, my daily life. And I wonder, how much time have I spent learning things that, that really aren't that important? Not bad things, but just, I, I don't know. And, and even now, as I think about what to spend my time on, sometimes there's this opportunity cost. What do I spend my time knowing and learning about? What do I not? Here's, here's the astounding thing. As we think about knowing God. Every second that you spend trying to know God is a, is a moment well spent. A moment that is going to have value on into eternity. 
There's not a moment that you spend coming to God and looking at him and, and knowing him in his word that you can go, oh, that was kind of wasted time. Deuteronomy 29, 29, God says that, this, uh, that we, we learn that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our, our children forever. And I think the emphasis there is not to, not to revel in the mysterious and keep on saying, well, everything's mysterious. I don't know. God's mysterious. I think the, the purpose of that, of that verse is, is to, yes, give us confidence in the things we don't know, but at the same time say, hey, look, the things that are revealed, we have a responsibility and an obligation and, and the joy of, of knowing. Think about, I'm not going to go there, uh, but Job, at the end of Job, I encourage you to look at that sometime. Job 38 and 39 and on, as, as God talks about all the things that are true of him and what he knows and what he's done. And, and, and what the, the application there is that, that I have the opportunity to, to come into relationship with God and, and know him and know his character and, and know how the one who has existed from eternity past would have me live this moment of my day. And I'm convinced that this morning there are some of you who are coming to points in your life where you're going to have to make some major decisions. And as, and maybe you're there this morning, and, and you, you think about a decision you're making in your life, you're like, yep, I'm there. Maybe it's something no one else is aware of. And there's a temptation, I think, sometimes, as we come to these, these forks in the road, to minimize what we know God desires us to do. In fact, sometimes there's a temptation to deny that a fork in the road exists at all. So, for example, we, we come to a moment in our, in our life where um, we have the opportunity to pursue a, we're a young person, and we have an opportunity to pursue a relationship that we know doesn't bring glory to God. And we have the opportunity to, to turn away from that relationship that's not going to bring glory to God. And if we don't know God, if we aren't convinced of his character and his knowledge and his love for us and his holiness, we are going to try to explain away the decision we might want to make and say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and pursue this path and, and God's okay with it and, and God understands and, and God isn't that concerned with holiness and, and God understands that guys will be guys and girls will be girls or, or whatever and and we're going to do things to try to explain away what we know God desires us to do. We're going to come to this moment in our career path where, where we know that, that pursuing this career, this, this, this career path is, is not what God would have us to do. It's a more prestigious position perhaps, but it's not a position that's going to allow us to do other things that God has called us to do. Maybe it's going to call us to, to move to a, a location in which our, our families are not going to be spiritually provided for. And so we, we, try, we explain away the decision. God doesn't really care. God's okay with this. A knowledge of God and his character of him who has been from the beginning lets us know, okay, God, is, God loves me. God is holy. God desires me to have faith in him and trust him and obey him even in circumstances in which I don't want to. Fathers, be encouraged, John says, because you know the eternal God. You know him who was from the beginning. Here's a third thing to encourage us. Young men, he says, young men, be encouraged because you've overcome the evil one. 
you overcame the evil one, he says. He says it in verse 13, and then he says the same thing in verse 14, but elaborates. I'm writing to young men, and he says, here, here's three things that he, that he tells these young men. And for, now, note too, by the way, that he's not talking about just uh, because you overcome evil. He's not just talking about evil in an abstract sense, but he's talking about uh, the demonic forces. The evil one stands for Satan, who's representative of the, the demonic forces. And a lot of times we might talk about how you know, Satan is trying to get me to do this, or Satan is trying to do this, and, and I don't know if it's always necessarily Satan who's all that concerned with you, but certainly the, the, the demonic realm works to destroy you, to destroy the decisions that you're going to make and, and to cause your, your life to not have joy. And the demonic realm works to deceive, to cause you to believe things about reality that aren't true, that aren't in keeping with God. And the demonic realm works to defame the name of God, to, to not allow God's glory as much as it is able to, 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 to be uh, declared by all. And so that's what the demonic realm is doing. And, and, and Paul, I'm sorry, John says, you've overcome that. Now how? Here's, here's three things we see in verse 14. Number one, he says there's, you, were, you were able to overcome because you're strong. You're strong. That's the image of a young man here. You know, they, they say that the average age at which an Olympic record is set by an athlete is, is 26. So I've got an uphill battle to face at this point in my life. But keep believing, right? Um, a young man, you think of a young man, is strong, they have, they have strength, and, and God is, is strong, right? We think of Deuteronomy 10, 17, the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. And God is a God who's strong and gives strength to his people. Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous. Joshua 1, 7, be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you, says Joshua. Do not turn from it to the right, or God says through Joshua, to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Okay, so what is a young man? And, and, and as you speak to you as, as young men, whether you're a young woman or old woman or old man or young, you're young men and that you're overcomers because you're strong. Now, what's the second thing he says here? Why are you so strong? Well, what does he say? It's, because the Word of God abides in you. The Word of God abides in you. How does the Word of God ab abide in us? Think about what the New Testament says about God's Word. First of all, I'm convinced that the church fails to understand the power of God's Word and one of the ways that that's manifested in, is in what we believe we come here to do on a Sunday morning, sometimes. My task on a Sunday morning is not to give you Daniel's top three inspirational thoughts for your life today and this week. It's not to entertain you. It's not to have you walk away thinking, man, that Daniel sure is smart or funny or good-looking, whatever. <laughs> Mission accomplished, right, if that's not my purpose? It's a simple job. And it's a simple job you have on a Sunday morning as well. We gather together as saints to proclaim the Word of God to one another and to worship Him. 
it's all of us proclaim the Word of God together. We, we gather together, the Word of God richly dwells within us, and we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other. And then there, there's a teaching of, of God's Word. Paul describes the pastoral task beautifully. Colossians 1.25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to do what? To make the Word of God fully known. Teach God's Word. Here's God's Word. Here it is. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 2.17, Look, we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word. I'm not some circus clown up here, Paul is saying. I'm not, I'm not some entertainer. I'm not trying to, to do something flashy. I, I'm just being faithful to God's Word. I'm not a peddler. He says, I, 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 I'm sincere. I'm commissioned by God. I have a divine obligation. You and I have a divine obligation. I have a divine obligation to you to speak Christ, he says. Hebrews 13, 7, your leaders spoke to you the word of God. And, and what's the responsibility of, of all of us in the church? Well, we received the word of God. The Thessalonica, the people in Thessalonica, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, I thank God, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What is that? It's the word of God. And, and John's encouragement to you Young men, is that you're strong. And what is the source of your strength? The source of your strength isn't your good looks. It's not how smart you are. It's not what a super-duper personality you have. The source of your strength is the Word of God. And the Word of God dwells within you and gives you the power to do the things that God has called you to do. And that's encouraging. John's source of encouragement here is, is for believers to say, I know that I have the Word of God that's going to allow me to live as God has called me to live. I can overcome the demonic forces that want to deceive and destroy because I, I know what God desires me to do because I can look into His Word and find it out. Whenever Whitney and I were in uh, South Africa, there was, uh, the first night we were there was really rough. You know, we're suffering from jet lag. And I was reading an article about this, and, and uh, apparently there, there's, there's, there are these neurons in your brain that can, that can uh, help kind of tune out noise that is kind of background noise that you hear all the time. So, for example, it, it, the neurons keep that, that noise from reaching the, 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 the part of the brain that really processes information, thinks critically about things. And so that, that, that ticking sound of the clock, the, the, the brain can kind of shut that out so you're not thinking about it all the time. Or, um, you know, the, the sound of, of water or something, or, or the sound of your children whining. I mean, you hear it enough, and they can just kind of tune that out. You know? I, I come home, and I hear a kid, uh, maybe not, this is a, maybe a few years ago, I hear a kid perhaps not res responding in a honoring way to his or her mother. And I'm like, Whitney, can you hear that? Nope. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Can't hear it anymore. You know. We're, anyway, we're in South Africa, and, and it's, it's late at night. We're trying to sleep, and there's this, this, um, 
there's this sound that keeps going off every 1.1 seconds. I timed it because I was awake. And it was just a over and over and over again for hours. And you're like, oh, neuron, please turn on. The Word of God, the Word of God, for many of us, has lost some of its power. We're able to hear the Word of God and, and tune it out. Heard that before, heard that before, heard that before. Nothing new, nothing new. And John says, no, be encouraged. Remember this. You're strong. You're strong. Why? Because you have the Word of God. It's powerful. I've proclaimed it to you, John says, and, and you've received it, and you have that. Brothers and sisters, don't let the Word of God fall on hardened ears, a hardened heart. Have soft ears that are willing to receive what God's Word says and and receive its power. And that's the third thing, right? The third thing is that the overcoming takes place. You've overcome the evil one, he says at the end of verse 14. You don't overcome the evil one by mystical rituals, by having a real intense emotional experience, although the emotional experience can, can accompany it. But the tool is the Holy Spirit working through his word change and allow us to overcome the evil one, the, the, the deceptive thoughts of this world. The false teachers have come in, they've infiltrated the church, they've separated some people, and, and John says, no, 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 that's not you. You, you, you place your faith in Christ, and, and so you're, you're like children, and your sins have been forgiven. You have a father now, and, and, you're, and you're like a father. You know the one who's from, from eternity past, and you can live a godly life, and, and you're like, you're overcomers, you've got the word of God. You can, you can overcome the, the deception of the evil one. You're powerful. Church, I hope that encourages you. I hope you're encouraged by that. You're like children. You're like fathers. You're like young men. God has been gracious to you in, in every aspect so that you know him and have a relationship with him that should bring joy should cause you to have assurance, and it should motivate you to continue in obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good word that you have for us in your word. Thank you that we're overcomers. Thank you that you have been so gracious to us. Give us grace to be continually obedient to you. Help those who are hurting this morning to, to trust in you, to trust in a, in a heavenly Father who loves them and who's existed from eternity past. We trust our eternity future to you. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.